Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. today. God, we thank you for meeting us here, for your grace which sustains us, for your mercy which is new to us this day. Lord, for the opportunity and gift we have to gather as a community and to open your word and to hear from your voice. Thank you, Lord, for the special opportunity we have this morning uh, to dive into the book of Ecclesiastes. May all we learn serve to advance your kingdom here on this earth and in our lives. We pray for the sake of Jesus. Together we say, amen. All right, smack the piano bench there. Hey, welcome everybody. I want to say thank you so much for coming uh, this morning for our weekly gathering. Uh, Today is a special day. By the way, for those of you who don't know, my name is Jeremy. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor here. Also, privilege of playing piano today. So it's always great to be able to lead worship with my friends up here. And I'm thankful for each one of them. Um, this morning, I have a special, special guest with us, though. Um, um, Dr. Russ Meek is one of my professors from Moody Theological Seminary. I took, uh, I think I've told you this, I, I took Hebrew 3 from him, and uh, he was very kind and gracious and uh, helped us a lot get through all of that. But more than that, he's just a, a scholar and a lover of the Lord, a dad. He's got three kids, and you might see his wife and his three kids around here uh, this morning. Um, and so if you see them, just say hi and and, and uh, be friendly to them, as I know you will be. Uh, but we are diving into Ecclesiastes, and I've asked him to come because Ecclesiastes is one of those books that I think for a lot of us, like I, I reread it this week, and there are a couple of portions. Like I had to reread because I'm like, wait, what is he talking about here? And just trying to understand what is God trying to say through this incredible book within the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and uh, Dr. Meek is a fantastic scholar, and and theologian in this right. And so I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for his family and their willingness to come up here from Louisiana is where they're from. Did I say that any Southern? Louisiana. Louisiana. I'm an Ohio guy. What can I say? Uh, Louisiana. And so uh, we're thankful that their family took a road trip to open the scriptures for us this morning. And so could we just give a West Michigan welcome to Russ Meek this morning? West Michigan welcome. All right, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, like Jeremy said, I have three kids and a wife, and um, I, I was trying to think of like what stories to tell about my kids today because you know that always kind of helps to you know break the ice or whatever. Um, but I landed on two. So the first one is that my oldest son, he's five, and last week and or two weeks ago. So you know with uh, coronavirus and COVID and all of that stuff, it's been a little bit difficult with church and. We don't have childcare yet at our church. And so uh, after the service last week, he tells me, or two weeks ago, he said, you know, I like it. I like singing at church. I like it when we do the songs. But whenever that man gets up and talks for a long time, I do not like that. So, uh, yeah. So the, 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 other, the other thing is I do have my sons are, um, my two youngest sons are four months apart. 
And we are so close to adopting our um, middle son. It's been like this long, harrowing journey. Um, but we are like very, very close to finishing this journey. Um, and when, they, when we got uh, Peyton, is his name, when he came to live with us, he was uh, six months old and our youngest son was two months old. And uh, I don't remember what had happened, but anyway, like, it's a blur. You know, if you have kids, like, anything is, like, most things are, like, a blur for several months. Um, and at one point, I was at the store, and somehow I got to talking about our kids, and I was like, oh, well, the youngest two are four months apart. And the clerk, like, looked at me, and I was like, oh, but they have different moms. And then she, like, looked at me again, and I was like, oh, well, I'm not married to both of them. And I was like, well, never mind. Like, never mind. Like, Yeah. So that's, yeah, it was quite, quite the experience. So anyway, um, Ecclesiastes is, is my favorite book in the Bible. Um, it is, uh, I think it has a lot to offer our, a lot to offer me, a lot to offer you, hopefully, um, a lot to offer our culture. Um, and, oh, did you guys get a handout, by the way? So we're going to use, the, we're going to look at this today. Um, we're doing, going to do three Three sessions on Ecclesiastes, and and the reason this book is so important to me um, is there's kind of like three childhood events that really shaped my life. Um, my uh, the first one is my parents were divorced when I was six years old, and that obviously like has a, had a profound impact and effect on my life and really changed the way I saw and viewed the, the entire world. Um, growing up after that, my dad was an alcoholic. He wasn't really around. It was one of those, I mean, I, I, we lived in the same town and I wouldn't see him for months on end, you know? It was a very, very difficult uh, up until, I mean, up until he passed away. And into this gap that was left by my dad stepped my grandmother. We called her Mimi. I don't know what people call grandmothers in West Michigan, but in Arkansas, we called her Mimi. Uh, and Mimi lived about a block away from me, okay? And so I grew up going to her house every single day. I mean, I, the school bus stop was there. I spent my mornings there, ate breakfast there, ate dinner there, spent Saturdays there. I mean, like that's, she was really the, my, the rock in my life. Um, and so... But Mimi passed away when I was uh, 11 or 12. I can't remember exactly when it was. Um, and I'll talk about more about that a little bit later. Um, but that event also, uh, in the same way, or in a similar way to my dad passing, my dad, not passing away, my dad leaving, um, then I had this other kind of stable adult in my life passed away. And that really shook me up too. Um, and, and so then, I mean, I felt unmoored and kind of without any sort of um, hope in life, you know. Um, shortly after that, I started using drugs. Uh, and like a little kid, you know, like now I think back on it, I think like whenever I see like a, a 12-year-old kid, I just think, my gosh, like how in the world, how, how did that happen, you know? And that kind of started this like coping pattern of stuffing down feelings and then using something to deaden those feelings um, that continued for, for a very decades of my life, you know. 
And the third thing that happened um, after this, and, and like things get better, I promise. This is just kind of saying like, this is why Ecclesiastes is so significant for me. Um, the third thing that happened is uh, my mom married a, uh, a guy who turned out to be like super abusive. Um, and he was uh, very well respected in the community, a, a leader in the church. He was a deacon, led a small group, all of these things, and turned out to be just this angry, abusive man. And so I'd gone from, you know, in the course of like six years there, gone from, or seven years, having my family together and my dad, you know, leaving, my grandmother passing away and now moving into this other home with this guy who was just violent and unpredictable and yet everyone in the church thought he was this wonderful person. And these three things that happened that I experienced in life radically altered my view of the world. Uh, and it wasn't until I came to college. When I, when I came to college, I became a Christian. And when I became a Christian, I had a lot of anger, right? A lot of frustration, a lot of pain. And um, I don't know if you guys have BCM here, Baptist Collegiate Ministries, but that was kind of the, the it was called Baptist Student Union when I was in college. And there was a guy there named Neil who was like the leader of it. He was essentially like a college pastor. And he helped me, uh, he, he helped me to read the Bible, right? And so the book of Ecclesiastes, there are some other scriptures that really helped me get through this, but the book of Ecclesiastes was one of those books that Neil says, hey, why don't you, you know, read this book? And in this book, I was able to find uh, what one, one scholar has called it uh, a backdoor uh, into the Christian faith. Um, because in, in the church I'd grown up in, it, if you weren't like happy and excited and felt like, you know, life is good, everything is going wonderful, like that, if you weren't that, then you must be in sin, right? So it was either this happy, everything is wonderful kind of experience or like, man, you must be doing something wrong to be, to be having these feelings of, you know, anger, anxiety, or depression, or whatever. But Ecclesiastes, like, if you guys have read it, it is, um, it kind of presents a dark picture of life, right? Um, at least that's how I took it at first. Uh, but the more I studied it, and the more I read it, and I ended up doing um, some special studies in my master's program, and then writing my um, dissertation on the book of Ecclesiastes. And so, through all of this process, God has just shown me uh, his love and his goodness through the book of Ecclesiastes, and because Ecclesiastes wrestles with the things that I wrestled with, like because of these kind of traumatic, life-shaping events in my childhood, I saw a similar sort of wrestling in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and so that's what I want to talk about over uh, these next three sessions is how Ecclesiastes wrestles with um, the difficulties of life, right? And so we read, uh, you know, this, the, the first session will be on the Genesis shape of Ecclesiastes. So I think if we're going to uh, understand the book of Ecclesiastes, we have to understand it in light of Genesis. Um, and I, and I'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but my, whenever I talk at my church... Back in Louisiana, they make fun of me because every single time, like it doesn't matter what I'm, what I'm speaking about, Ecclesiastes, Exodus, Micah, 
Genesis, or not just Matthew, it doesn't matter, whatever, whatever it is I'm talking about, I always say, now let's start back in the book of Genesis, because if we don't understand Genesis, we're not going to understand whatever it is going on here, but it's true, we have to understand Genesis, okay? So, the first session will be the Genesis shape of Ecclesiastes, and this is all going to be setting this to the table for understanding Ecclesiastes as this honest wrestling with kind of the, the struggles of life. Hopefully you guys have an experience like significant and deep trauma, but all of us will have, will experience or will have experienced um, some sort of setback and frustration in life. I mean, that's just the life that we live, right? And the book of Genesis, the Genesis shape of Ecclesiastes helps us see that. It helps us see how the book of Ecclesiastes deals with those frustrations, um, the second session, we'll, we'll talk about life turned upside down, uh, the, the, the able in Ecclesiastes, and so that's part of the Genesis shape. And the third session, we'll say, okay, what now? So we'll kind of like build up to like uh, the second session is going to be about like pain and death and frustration. Um, and the third session will be like, okay, what do we do now? How do we live in light of all of these things? And I think the book of Ecclesiastes takes us on this journey, right? And so... That's what we're going to do today. This is, it's a very meandering book, the book of Ecclesiastes. It has starts and stops. If you guys have read it, you'll notice that it's very cyclical, um, and he comes back to the same themes, the same themes over and over again. It's not, like, um, it's not like Paul's letters, you know? You don't sit down and read it like the book of Ephesians, and it has like a, a clear, logical progression. Ecclesiastes doesn't have that. It is circular. It just kind of goes round and round and round. And the thing that I think is really cool about that is that's the way life is. You know, we don't just kind of, life doesn't just come at us in orderly steps, right? It comes in these waves and things that we get blindsided, crazy stuff happens. We don't always expect things to happen in the way that they happen, right? And we just kind of have to take it as it comes at us. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does. That's how it it reads as if, like, it's about life. Um, but there's some major themes in the book. Joy, death, injustice, and fearing God. And I think if we can get a handle on these themes, they'll help us to understand the book of Ecclesiastes better. So my goal is to give you guys some um, handles so that, like, hopefully after we leave here today, you guys go home and read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it makes a lot more sense because you can see kind of these major themes in the book. You can see how um, the author uses the book of Ecclesiastes and stuff like that, all right? So, um, looking at the Genesis shape of Ecclesiastes, we'll talk about illusion. Um, and you guys, feel free to please stop me or interrupt me or raise your hand at any time. I'm a teacher, and so I'm used to, used to you know, people saying like, hey, what does that mean or whatever? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and you'll also see, so this is, so what is illusion? All right, this is um, a line from Jay-Z's song, the Mo A Moment of Clarity. I also always gets a lot of laughs whenever I teach a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds. But I grew up listening to hip-hop music, or rap, as it was called then. And um, I was a young kid whenever I first bought, my, bought the first album. It was um, an Eazy-E album. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Eazy-E. Um, very, don't go listen to him. Don't go look him up on YouTube or anything like that. It's not, not, a good, not a good person to listen to. 
Um, but hip-hop music, I started listening to it when I was young because it was angry, right? So uh, Ice Cube and N.W.A. and Eazy-E, uh, Eminem, these guys are really upset about life, right? They have, their, their lyrics are dark and filled with rage. And in my family, we, you know, even like my grandmother, my grandmother was wonderful and taught me so much and showed me what it means to love God and be faithful to God. But one thing my family never did well was express emotion. It just wasn't a thing. Like you stuffed it down. It was not acceptable in our family to express any emotion at all. And so hip hop allowed me to express that emotion. It, it showed me like, oh, people do get, get mad and get upset. And that was like pretty much the, the primary emotion I felt at the time. So, hip-hop is full of illusions. That's like, that's trying, yeah, it takes me a while sometimes to get to where I'm wanting to go. Hip-hop is full of illusion. And illusion is just, if you don't know, it's basically a literary device where one person, where you refer to something else, okay? So it's like you make a reference in a song or in a movie or in a book or a poem or whatever to something else. So there's a source text and a, a uh, receptor text, right? So the receptor text would be what is making the illusion. The source text would be what is being alluded to. Now, Jay-Z here, one of my favorite music, uh, artists, he says, music business hate me because the industry ain't make me. Hustlers and boosters embrace me and the music I be making. I dumb down for my audience to double my dollars. They criticize me for it, yet they all yell holla. If skills sold, truth be told, I'd probably be lyrically Talib, Talib Kweli. Truthfully, I want to rhyme like common sense, but I did five mil. I ain't been rhyming like common sense. Okay, now, you get the basic gist of what he's saying here. He's saying, like, I'm a good, I'm a good rapper, and I'm good at my craft, and I make a lot of money, and I give people the type of music they want, they want to listen to, right? That's basically what he's getting at. Now, when I do this in class, in my freshman Old Testament class, we listen to the whole song, um, and I have them list out all the different allusions that Jay-Z makes in this song, okay? Because, and it's like, I don't know, it's like a three-minute song, and there are tons of allusions that he makes to other things. Like, for instance, in this, he talks about the... Uh, they criticize me for it, yet they all yell holla. That's a reference to an, a song that came out like 15 or 20 years ago, one of Jay-Z's first songs that made a lot of money for him. It really did well. Um, the, second, like, the second big one is he refers to a rapper called Common Sense, who's actually named Common now. Uh, and then he says, he's talking, and who is a very well-known rapper for being like more intellectual and creating... Uh, you know what you would consider like more intellectual raps. And so Jay-Z is saying like, I could be like him if I wanted to be like him, but I make a lot more money than him, so I don't rhyme like that anymore, right? Uh, and so, and you see like the wordplay with sense and sense. In this song, Jay-Z also refers to um, Biggie Smalls, a rapper who was killed in the 90s. I think it was the 90s, maybe 2000s. Um, he talks about uh, his records going platinum, um, and he talks about, he, he uses the reference four scores and seven years ago. So all that to say, like he, we can understand what Jay-Z is talking about in this song without understanding all of these references. But if we know who Common Sense is, 
Uh, if we know what the word hala, that that hala is referencing a song that he wrote years ago, if we know who Biggie Smalls is, if we know that platinum refers to a, a record that sold X number of um, X number of copies, and if we know that four scores and seven years ago is a reference to Abraham Lincoln uh, and the Emancipation Proclamation, if we know all of that information, we can appreciate the song a little bit more. We might still, maybe you still don't like it. That's okay, but. You can understand it without the illusions, but you can appreciate it so much better if you know what the illusions are that he's getting at. So here, here's another example. Whenever you guys see anything with, um, this, this one's a lot, a lot easier. If you see two people or two things with a piece of spaghetti between them, what do you think of? Lady in the Tramp, exactly, yeah, that, that my wife said it, you know. I told her she had to sit in the front row and say something if I asked a question. Right, Lady and the Tramp, right? This movie is so ingrained in our cultural memory. This scene especially. If you've seen this movie, you know if you see two things with spaghetti between them, Lady and the Tramp is forced into the front of your mind, right? And, and you see like all, and this is movie is, I don't know, it's like 30 or 40 years old. But it changed our culture in some sense, such that when we see the spaghetti thing, we think of the movie Lady and the Tramp, right? It's an illusion. So an illusion can be through words or through images, but it forces into our mind something else, right? So it's not just, so you can understand, you can understand an allusion to Lady and the Tramp. If you've never seen Lady and the Tramp, you can understand the spaghetti thing sort of, but it makes a lot more sense if you've seen the movie, right? This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is doing. It's drawing on cultural memory, right? So the book, the author of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet is what he calls himself, is steeped in the Old Testament. And all throughout his 12 chapters, he makes reference after reference after reference to the book of Genesis. Now, can we understand Ecclesiastes without the book of Genesis? Yes, I think we can. Can we understand it as well? No, we can't. So our goal or our job, kind of as Christians studying scripture, we want to learn to be <clears throat> the ideal reader of scripture, right? We want to be the ideal audience. And if we're going to understand what Ecclesiastes is getting at, we have to understand his, the, the, cultural, the cultural memories that he's forcing to the front of their heads, right? The front of their minds. So things that we don't pick up on that we wouldn't understand necessarily because we are not so steeped in the book of Genesis like the original audience of Ecclesiastes would be. Okay, so there's what, uh, like five, four or five major places. And what I want to do today is just build, like build the case to say you've got to read Genesis, especially one through four, in order to really understand what Ecclesiastes is doing. And we'll talk about in the next session, like, why, like, what the most important part of that is, I think. And then the next session, we'll talk some more about, like, what do we do in light of this? Um, so I want to walk through some passages in Ecclesiastes. I'm just going to go through the ones in, ones in Genesis and ones in Ecclesiastes, trying to show that there is a comparison, that the author is using allusion to bring to mind the book of Genesis. And this purpose in doing this, the purpose in bringing to mind the book of Genesis is to give his readers, us and his original readers, kind of a theological framework, 
Okay, so Ecclesiastes is talking about life in the context of the theology of Genesis. So we have to have that theology in mind if we're going to understand what the book of Ecclesiastes is talking about. So, trees and waters and parks, oh my. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 through 6. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs, reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female servants and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And he goes on. I amassed silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces, males and female singers, and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Now, I think there are two things that Ecclesiastes is getting at here. Oh, and oh, by the way, I wanted to say it. I meant to, to put this up there, but I forgot. When he says he made gardens and parks and vineyards, we should be thinking of like a botanical garden. I don't know if you've ever been to a botanical garden before or something like in a zoo or, yeah, like a zoo, where they have these... Um, just like massive uh, gardens with all sorts of like flowers and you know trees and shrubs and stuff like that. We're not talking about like a um, a garden like you have in your backyard. This is like a magnificent uh, garden that kings in the ancient Near East would build to say to show how like awesome they are. And they would put stuff like like the um, the Assyrian kings especially were like famous for. They would bring animals from all over the world. Everywhere they could get, they would bring animals and put them in these parks that they had. And they would hunt the animals and stuff like that. But So I think Ecclesiastes is, first of all, drawing on that. He's drawing on that kind of cultural memory or cultural idea of a great king. And he's saying, look, this is the kind of king I was. I was the kind of king who built... Sorry, I just... I think I just turned that off. Okay. He's saying, I was the kind of king who built awesome things. Now, in addition to that, there's another king, if we're thinking about, a, if we're thinking about um, being a Hebrew person listening to the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll also think about another king who made another incredible park, another incredible garden, uh, and that is in Genesis, right? And if you guys, in the handout, in the uh, handout here, <coughs> this is what I'll be having here. So I just have like... Um, on, on here, I have repeated terms and repeated themes, okay? And so you'll see, like, Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 6 has to plant, to make, gardens, trees of every kind of fruit, to water, to sprout. And then Genesis 2, 8, 2, 2 and 8 through 10 has the repetition of these words, to plant, to make, to garden, tree of every kind, to water, to sprout. And then you also have repeated themes, okay? So creation by a ruler. All right. So in order for there to be, like, an illusion there... We have to see, like, the repetition of themes and the repetition of vocabulary. All right, so that's kind of the, the how I mark those things out. All right. So let's look back at Genesis 2, 2, 8 through 10. We'll be going back and forth between Genesis and Ecclesiastes.
Okay, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And I'll skip down to verse eight. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree, uh, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. And then it goes on to talk about the different types of water, or the different, ty- the, the different names of the rivers. Sorry. So in this passage, and in Hebrew, like, you can see it a lot better, um, but these are the repeated terms and repeated themes. Ecclesiastes is saying, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, look, I made this garden, Right? Similar to this other garden that you guys know about uh, from the book of Genesis, okay? And so he's trying to paint this picture of himself as someone who's like, okay, and we keep reading. And like, so the goal is I want you guys at some point, Lord willing, you'll read the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to think about these connections that Genesis is making. So we're not going to explore them all uh, in detail, just kind of point them out. But in this case, he's saying, look. He's telling his audience, I tried to do this thing that God tried to do, okay? I tried to make this garden and this park, and I did the same thing God did. I put these trees in it, and I watered it. I irrigated it is the word that it uses um, in in Ecclesiastes and Genesis. And then he's going to go on a little bit later, and he's going to say, all of this was hevel or vanity or meaningless. It's what we're going to talk about um, in the next session, what that word means, okay? But trees and waters and parks, Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes is presenting himself as someone who tries to do the things God does. He builds a garden in the same way God built this garden. And he uses the same language to mimic what's going on in the book of Genesis. The second allusion is in Ecclesiastes 3.1. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. You guys, if you guys are familiar with the birds, you know, they wrote that, they wrote a song based off of the poem that comes next. Um, Genesis 131, let's look at this. God saw all that he was made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning and the sixth day, okay? And if we start, I don't want to read all of Genesis 1, but if we look at the whole of Genesis 1, we have this theme of creation, the repetition of these terms, all and to make and God and beautiful and good, and they're talking about creation and God creating and, and, the, and creation being viewed positively. And this is really important for understanding the book of Ecclesiastes because he's developing his theology of creation, right, with Genesis in mind. And in Genesis, things are good. In the book of Ecclesiastes, also, we're going to see here in just a second, sees things as good, as this creation that God made as a good thing. He has a very, the book has a very high view of God's sovereignty, has a very high view of the world that God created. And all of that is going to be important for when we get to the part about how are we supposed to navigate this life? All right, the second or the third uh, kind of illusion that I think is really important 
this ashes to ashes, dust to dust. One scholar have said that the book of Kohelet has the smell of the tomb about it. Uh, it's because the book of Kohelet's another word for Ecclesiastes. Because the book, if you've read the book, death is very prominent in this book. Um, and as you, as you sure, I'm sure as you've gotten older, kind of death seems more and more prominent as we kind of try to navigate this life. Uh, but we all experience death. We've all had someone close to us die. Um, and Ecclesiastes wrestles with this concept of death over and over again. Excuse me, and we'll see later on, um, I think in the next session, how the author really struggles with this concept of death. Okay, so I want to read these two passages in Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 21. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because all the work done under the sun was grievous to me. All is hevel, the Bible might say meaningless or vanity or something like that, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, which I have poured into my poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is heaven. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is heaven and a great. Uh, A great misfortune. Sorry, I missed my, messed up my spot there. And then Ecclesiastes twelve seven. I'm the end here, the very end of the book. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit of God, and the spirit returns to God, who gave it. Okay, so in both these passages in Ecclesiastes, we have the author using this language of dust, right? This language, God created this out of dust. Man is gonna to return to dust. Our spirit is gonna go back to God, the author of Ecclesiastes says. And you guys know this imagery of dust is from the book of Ecclesiastes, or sorry, the book of Genesis. In Genesis 2, 7, but then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And then just one chapter later, 319, by the sweat of the brow, you will eat, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, to dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now you'll see there's like a whole bunch of different features on this. This is, I think, a really important part um, of how Ecclesiastes uses Genesis. So we saw he's saying, He's drawing his theology of creation from the book of Genesis. He's saying, like, look, everything was made in the appropriate way. So first, let me go back. He's saying, look, I tried to create something. I tried to create this garden like God created. You know, he's saying that in Ecclesiastes 2. He talks about everything being created appropriately, like in its right time. So he has this view of creation as basically a good thing that God did, right? And then here he says, look, 
He, he develops his theology also of death from the book of Genesis. And he's saying, you're created from dust and you're gonna return to dust, okay? And that is one of the major issues that Ecclesiastes wrestles with is, okay, we know that creation is good, right? We know that um, God created humans and he breathed this breath of life into them. But we also know that in between Genesis 2-7 and 3-19, something very bad happened, uh, the fall, right? And because of that experience, because of the fall, death comes to everyone. And Ecclesiastes is wrestling with that quite a bit. Now, without giving too, too much away, this, I think, is the, the biggest, most important issue in the book. I don't think we're going to do the next one, the, the one after this, but this one for sure. In light of the, cre- the theology of creation, you know, God created everything. God created everything good, and yet we experience this experience of death. We're made from dust, and we return to dust because of this moment in Genesis 3. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, remember I said there are like starts and stops in the book. It's very cyclical. Um, It goes, it kind of will pick up a theme, and then it'll drop it and go to another theme. It'll pick up and then drop that and go to another theme. But it returns over and over again to these kind of basic ideas of fearing God, enjoying God, and um, death and the frustration that we experience in life because of this Genesis 3 moment. Now, uh, we're gonna, our last, the last session is gonna be about these verses, like, in particular. Um, But what I wanna point out here, we'll just read, I'll just read, like, a few of them. If I can find the book of Ecclesiastes, my Bible. Just kidding. Okay, I'm just gonna read a few of these. These are called the Carpe Diem, or Seize the Day, or Enjoy passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. So remember, he's drawing from the book of Genesis. All right, so I'll just read a few of these, and then we'll kind of talk about the overlap. 2, 24 through 26. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is hevel, a chasing after the wind. Hevel is that word that we're going to talk about in the next, um, next session. We'll do 3, 10 through 16, 15. Whoever, oh, I'm in chapter six, sorry. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God does that so that people will fear him. Whatever has already been and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to count. 
Okay, let's look at 11, eight through 10. And we'll, we're gonna read these more in the third session. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is heaven. For you, you who are young, be happy while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to in judgment, into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are hevel or passing or something like that. So the book of Ecclesiastes says, and these things, sorry, these things that he says to enjoy, if we look back at Genesis 2, 15 through 25, and you'll see in the chart here has several overlapping terms. Toil, God, eating, drinking, goodness, okay? The enjoyment of a spouse. Let's just read 2, 15, Genesis 2, 15 through 25 really fast. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a father leaves his, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And then it goes on from there right into uh, the story of the fall. But it talks about, so in, in this garden, before the fall, you have the man, Adam and Eve, experiencing relationship with God. You have God saying, look at all of these trees. You can take and eat whatever you want. Take and eat any food. Here's a spouse to enjoy it with. And by the way, here's the work that you're supposed to do. He puts him in the garden to work the land, to keep it, to take care of it, to cultivate it, right? And it's not going to be difficult work. Uh, in Genesis 3, we find out that things go south for Adam and Eve. The work becomes very, very difficult. And so when the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll focus in on this in the third session, when he talks about, when he says, find joy, enjoy your spouse, enjoy food, enjoy wine, unless you're Baptist, and enjoy work, right? He says, enjoy these things because God has given them to you, right? So we have, and that kind of, without giving too much away, that is really the solution that Ecclesiastes gives to this meandering, death-filled, difficult life. And he repeats these, he repeats these, these calls to enjoyment, in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, almost as if, like, as you go through life, 
you're going to need this constant reminder over and over and over and over. And so if we read the book of Ecclesiastes, and hopefully, I hope that you guys will go back through and look at these more closely. I have to finish up here. Um, we'll talk about, in the next session, we're going to talk about the meaning of this word, hevel, um, and because and, that also is a very significant part of Ecclesiastes' use of Genesis. But I wanna, what I want you to walk away from this session with is saying, okay, throughout these 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, there's not, I know we, we went really quickly through these different allusions, but there's not a single chapter in this book that does not allude to Genesis 1 through 4, okay? And so, just like if we're gonna, we can read Ecclesiastes and understand what's going on. We can, we can basically get the gist of the book. But just like we can understand what Jay-Z is saying in his song, Moment of Clarity, but if we understand what the references he's making, if we can dig a little bit deeper and draw on some of that cultural memory that, that Jay-Z is relying on, if we can do that with the book of Ecclesiastes, if we can make ourselves go back to, okay, say, okay, how an original person hearing this book, what would they be thinking about? What would these references be calling to mind? If we can get ourselves in that frame of mind, in that situation, then we can read the book of Ecclesiastes and see this kind of Genesis shape of it. And the book Genesis 1 through 4, these major themes in Genesis 1 through 4 are God's sovereignty and goodness, God's creation of humans, the fall, obviously the fall and the entrance of sin and death into the world. And then in this next session, we're gonna talk about the Cain and Abel narrative and all that that brings to the book of Ecclesiastes. But what the author is doing is he's saying, look, as I'm going through this kind of circular, meandering, starts and stops discussion of life, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. He wants us to keep in mind the book of Genesis and the way that Genesis 1 through 4, the way it frames life, right? The way it frames God as creator, humans as created beings, um, and are wrestling with sin ever since um, Genesis 3. All right, let's pray. Lord, you are good and gracious. Thank you so much for your word, and I pray that you would help us to understand it and to know you more because of it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, part one. Part two is going to be important. Part three is going to be important. One of the reasons we wanted to do this uh, is because it's helpful to dig deep into the text. And, and Dr. Meek's laying a couple foundation things that will help us understand other components going on into the latter parts of the book. But I was reminded something uh, from yesterday. We, we were at a, um, a soccer game for one of my kids yesterday morning. I was reminded about the brokenness of life as there are two um, older adults and uh, another adult who were arguing over something. You know, someone was in the way. And quickly we went from here to DEFCON 10, you know. And I was like, this is a, th this is a soccer game. Take a deep breath. But, but really what underscored it for me is there's brokenness all around us. I don't know the story of the one parent. I don't know the story of the two grandparents. What I do know 
Kind of like how Andrew Peterson writes it. Do you feel the world is broken? We do, right? I did yesterday. I was like, oh no, are the cops coming? What's going down here? It, it was getting pretty bad. But we begin to understand as we, as we walk this life that struggle is inherent because of the fall. But then how do we respond to that as people of faith? How do we respond to God's goodness in the midst of that? And so I invite you to stay around for the second hour. We're going to um, take a brief break right now because bathrooms are good and, uh, and all that good stuff. We also, um, those of you joining us on live stream, we're going to reset the live stream so we have different, um, different videos for each one. So just uh, refresh that here in, in just a moment and join us again there. But um, could we just pray one more time? God, I, I know that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of hurt and pain in this world. It doesn't take going past a 10-year-old soccer game to see, to see the effect of sin upon humanity. And God, to be reminded how much we long for a time when there is righteousness and peace and justice that rules and God, we look forward to that when you come and you return and you rule and you reign with perfect righteousness. That's when we will experience it in its greatest fullness. But until that day, Lord, help us know how to walk humbly with you. God, for those who are experiencing um, struggle today, whether it's cancer, um, whether it's a loss of a loved one, whether it's a, a, an incredible wrong or injustice done to them or to someone they love. God, we look to you as the author of all things. We look to you and we say, God, in the midst of this pain, walk with us. Teach us what it means to be in relationship with you. Grant to us, Father, again, the peace that passes all understanding, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to see this world as you see it, people for whom Jesus died. Thank you, God, for these moments we have together today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before I dismiss you, just so you know, um, we're going to start the second session by singing a song together. Uh, we're going to sing a hymn. So when you hear the piano in the voice, come on in, let us sing together, and then we'll jump into the meaning of the word hevel, and we will just go from there. So thank you. You are dismissed. <laughs>